0: All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at the remarkable story of Moses. By faith, Moses is our title, and we're going to look at his faith. His faith is presented to us in more of a brass tacks, earthy, practical format, and uh, hopefully this will be something we can take to heart because this drives into the heart motivations and the Christian DNA for why we do what we do. Things that we refuse in life and things that we grasp grasp a hold of or accept or receive in life. Really, life is built around a bunch of these decision points of what you refuse and what you receive. Choices. Dominate. Our lives and our lifetimes, the choices you make, I would venture to say, and it's no understatement, um, really direct the trajectory of your life, the well-being of your life or the consequences of your life. Decisions that you make dictate the wealth and the well-being of your life, wealth not just in terms of money, but the wealth and richness that you can enjoy not deciding something is also making a decision indecision is a decision you can be someone who is very passive in at the dinner table and you're there and it someone might say well you're not leading very well because you're checked out but that is leadership that's passive leadership and it's a decision decisions more than circumstances will determine the course and quality of your life. Napoleon, he believed that in a cri- there is a crisis in every battle. He gave this testimony. He said there's a period of 10 or 15 minutes on which the outcome will depend. So you need to take advantage of this period for either there is victory or defeat found in the decision that you will make. Well, surely this is the case with sporting events. We see sort of the little brother of war in sporting events and, and there's decisions that are made and key ones, key plays, key outcomes that happen based on decisions. Well, more so than war or even in our um, sort of secular life decisions, our Christian holiness is based on decisions when Satan tempts, you're either saying yes or you're saying no to him. When your flesh is tempting you from the inside, you're either yielding to your flesh saying yes or no. You say yes or no to the company that you keep, to the way you spend your resources, and to what you fill your mind with, right? We say yes, we say no. They, these are decisions, business In business, there's a normal choice to either make more money or less, often determined by being honest or ethical or not, getting ahead, or being willing to decide for your family and the Lord's work over what you do even. Everything in life is an opportunity to give glory to God. In the ancient world, the Greeks used to have a statue called Opportunity. The front of the figure had long flowing hair. But the back of its head was bald, symbolizing the fact that we can grasp an opportunity as it comes towards us, but once it's passed, there's nothing to hold on to. No bald jokes, by the way. (laughs) Not opening that door, but watershed decisions are made all through the Bible, Adam and Eve. Adam chose wrongly and created the chemical reaction in our world, plaguing it with wrong sinful choices and sinfulness for all of humankind. In Israel, the days of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, Moses said in Deuteronomy thirty nineteen, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. At Shechem, Joshua charged the people. He said, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. At Mount Carmel, Elijah with the wavering Israelites, he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Abel chose a better sacrifice. Enoch chose to walk with God. God took him directly to heaven. Noah chose to build the ark. Abraham believed. God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Those who disbelieved were plunged into outer darkness. It's the way it's always been. Noah built the ark. Everyone was saved in his family, but everyone else drowned in unbelief. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are ones mentioned in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. They're choosing life instead of death. This is our choice. Everyone's facing these choices and the key for you is to relate your life with these heroes of the faith. These imperfect men and women that are described for us in the Bible are here for us as a faith heritage to us. It's easy to say, well, I can't relate to Noah building an ark or Abraham being asked to offer his son in sacrifice. These are extraordinary moments. How can I relate? But we're really talking about changed hearts by faith. It's what makes the New Testament important to us because it's tying together the Old Testament to the new. That's what the book of Hebrews does so wonderfully for us. Hebrew converts, think of them. They were locked in with the law of God. They were linked in through ethnicity and heritage, but they were being called upon to look at their heroes of the faith in a new way. It wasn't their ethnicity that was the direct link to them. It wasn't the law that was the direct link to them. It was their faith. It was their faith. Their changed heart of the Old Testament is our changed heart of the new Testament. It's the same. And it comes through faith. So Moses as a holy man is meant to show us what faith looks like. He wasn't perfect, but he was known for his holiness in terms of what he accepts, what he rejects. Well, let's look here at verses 23 in Hebrews 11, verses 23 and following just to get the sweep um, testimony of Moses life. Look at this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's stop there. Verse 24 gives us this picture of faith being self denial, something that Moses refused. Do you see that? He refused certain things, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a strong refusal. It was setting his life trajectory up. At that point, he was 40 years old. He was making not a whimsical decision. He wasn't making some sort of early 20s, sort of millennial decision. This is a man who understood that he was at a very pivotal point in his life. That's what verse 24 is talking about, a refusal. He'd been reared in the king's court. And he saw it as the temptation to be rejected in that moment, even for his soul's sake. We exercise saving faith and, and by exercising faith, you're saved in an instant. But saving faith is something that lives throughout your lifetime. You're not just saved and then it's an on-off switch and you turn it off until you need to turn it on again. Saving faith starts and then it has a life trajectory of decisions. Now there are failures, but there are victories. There is perseverance in saving faith. It's a race that you're running as you're moving forward in Christ likeness and in holiness. And these verses actually chronicle Moses's timeline. You could say it's speaking of parents who have Moses as a baby. And then he's he's growing up in the king's court or in Pharaoh's court. And then he has to make a decision at age 40. And he takes a strong stand that we're going to talk about. And then he flees to to become um, part of the Midianite culture. And then comes back 40 years later as an aged leader to rescue and be the voice for God deliverer of the Israelites out of Egypt. So this is chronicling Moses's life. But more importantly, it's going deeper than that. It's talking about faith's decisions. If you'll look with me back at Exodus 2, it's fascinating just to see what happened, what happened in Moses' life. Exodus 1, if you look there, it begins to build the storyline where Joseph died. He died. He was the prince of Egypt who had stayed in Egypt for God's um, people and for their betterment. But there was a Pharaoh, verse 8, who was the new king of Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So a new Pharaoh comes to town, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. So he's not looking at these Israelites positively or favorably, but he looks at them as a threat. And there's a multiplication of, of the Israelites is happening at such a level that he says, if they connect with the enemies outside, they will band together and they will overthrow us. And so he began to create laws where midwives were supposed to abort immediately abort male children at birth as a population control. Sound familiar? in our world around us, our society around us. He was, this was a Pharaoh who was lethal and the midwives somehow, verse 17 says, they were fearing God. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. They actually defended the um, Hebrew women saying they were strong. They were strong enough and we couldn't even get there in time. And so these boys, these baby boys were allowed to be being born. So verse 22, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to be to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, this picks right up. If you'll kind of put your thumb here and look back with me at verse 23 of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is actually first not talking about the faith of Moses. It's actually talking about Moses's parents and their faith and how they were fearless. In the face of Pharaoh, that's the storyline of Moses. That's, that's the soil of faith with which Moses was born into. This was the kind of household Moses grew up in. Now, remember Moses's parents, they're both Levites. We're going to see that in Exodus two. It says it right off the top and they both, they, they have Moses, they have Aaron who's the high priest, and then they have Miriam, who is a prophetess. It's amazing the heritage of these parents. I got to read verse 23 again. It says, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now in history, they They conjecture that the parents actually had a vision to see that Moses was favored, that God had an extraordinary plan for him. We don't know that to be the case one way or the other, but the word beautiful here means favored. And so these parents didn't just look at their baby boy and go, oh, we're going to save his life because he's beautiful. Every parent thinks their baby is beautiful, whether the baby's beautiful or not. We know that. But, but. The baby was favored. They knew that God had an especial plan for him. And so that's why they, in faith, took measures to save his life. They also, in faith, were acting fearlessly because to save a baby's life going against the Pharaoh's order was to put the parents' life in jeopardy. This is like hiding the Jews during World War II against Hitler's Nazis, right? It's saying, look, we're not going to save. We're going to save Moses and Aaron instead. And, and we're going to put our lives at risk by saving them. So we could save our lives by killing them, or we could put our lives at risk and die for saving them. And that's what they chose to do. They put their lives at risk. And so back to Exodus 2. It says, now a man from the house of Levi, and um, we're going to learn um, of these people. If you look at Exodus um, chapter 6, you'll see in verse 20, it's Amram, that's his name, took his wife Jochebed. And his, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. That's the, the lineage here of Exodus 620. And so we have Amram and Jochebed. That's who they are. And he's, they're both from the house of Levi, went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months now, we don't understand the circumstances of the culture, then what it means to hide a child for three months, but that was risky. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. So basically you have papyrus and, and you have pitch that's, um, you know, filling in the gaps to, to make a waterproofed um, bassinet for this baby. This was not. Their way of of sending their child whimsically into the Nile, wondering what 's going to happen, this was a strategic plan where they actually um, you know as the as the story goes on, plant um, the sister the sister of Moses in the reeds to pop up and and sort of clarify what 's going on so they she put in verse 3 she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him now the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river now the parents would have known that this is exactly what would have happened so she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant went, sent her servant woman and she took it And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister, she pops up because she was staged to be there, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Look at this verse nine. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So after Pharaoh's daughter, um, her heart melted for the baby because the baby was probably you know, crying and cooing and, and needy. Once that connection was made, then you have Moses sister standing up saying, look, let's just, let's have the baby go to a wet nurse. Hint, hint, you know, his mom would be the best option. And by the way, yeah, we'll accept wages for this. This is awesome. So, so instead of the baby being killed, the baby is drawn up out of the water, which means Moses. And that's where Moses got his name. but, this is a great story, at least practically speaking, but think more deeply than just the physical practicality of Moses life being saved because verse 10 says when the child grew older. So we don't know exactly the age of the child when Moses is going to be introduced back to Pharaoh's daughter. It says she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, she said, I drew him up out of the water. So th- the most important point I want to make is that in God's plan and providence, Moses was still going to be raised from infancy in the slave's hut under the tutelage and mentoring of his Hebrew parents, believing parents. It's amazing to think about that faith heritage is very, very powerful soil. And I think a lot of times we, you know, freak out with our society, right? How predatory it is, how gross it is, the culture, the media, the sound bites. everything's getting more and more flamboyant, more and more grotesque. And it could become worrisome for us to raise children in this culture and in this age. But the power of the word of God, the power of Parenting and nurturing children spiritually should not be underestimated, because this was a secular society. The Egyptians were occultists. They, it was a, it was wizardry. It was witchcraft, and that's what Moses was going to be raised in from boyhood up, but from infancy. Just like Paul spoke of Timothy, your mother and your grandmother raised you in the gospel from infancy. That powerful word that goes into the hearts should, should not be underestimated. So God had a divine plan and a unique strategy here that was playing out through Amram and Jochebed and the divine purposes of God. And then ultimately faith sent Moses into Pharaoh's court, which sounds like just a wild circumstance, but it's almost as if Amram and Jochebed knew that this would be the right plan. It's amazing. You see the other influence here of uh, Pharaoh's household in Acts 7. If you'll turn there, Acts 7 20 through 25 is Stephen's great sermon where he gives a storyline of the whole Bible, but he, he zeroes in on verses 20 through 25 on Moses. He gives some commentary here. He says, At this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So all this was being filed into Moses' mind as he was growing up. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. And so he, he understood the, the secular school and the secular worldviews and secular thinking. And all that influence was there. But look at this, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Why? Why did something come into his heart to visit his brothers? Why did that happen? It's because the seed of the word of God was there. I think a lot of times we get very nervous because our kids are out there in the culture and we should be nervous. I mean, this is a very, very predatory society, but if you've done the work, if you've made the investment if you've given the word of God, then we are to trust the investment. Trust the word of God in the lives of your kids over long periods of time. This is where Moses was 40 and acting in faith. It says when he was 40, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended and oppre- the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. That was not just his way of of saying, I'm going to do a, a sort of a, an emotive action here. It was actually his way of siding with God's people in a dramatic way in that moment. Verse 25, he supposed, this is faith in Moses' heart. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. So what a, what a history. I just wanted to kind of uncover verse 23 for you. I think it's easy when, you, when we zero in on verses 24 and following strictly to focus on Moses, but let's not forget how the faith heritage was passed down. There's actually a big time gap, a significant time lapse of 40 years between verse 23 and 24. This is where we're talking about Moses' faith. It's where Moses refused rank And greatness, he refused rank and greatness. What are the things that he refused? Well, there's three things he refused. He refused rank and greatness. And this should be um, underscored in terms of the weight of Moses sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice. You have Pharaoh's daughter who had saved his life, adopted and educated him. And some, according to historians, would say that this was Pharaoh's only child. This is the only son that's coming up in the line of Pharaoh. In ancient Eastern countries, they would even give non-blood-related boys a, a heritage and a history. So Moses was on the trajectory, on the path, just like Joseph had to be the next prince of Egypt, to be the viceroy next to Pharaoh, Really one of the most powerful people in the entire world. This is what Moses had to figure out at age 40 in terms of what he was going to do. The question is, how large of a temptation was it not to accept this position of rank and greatness? Moses was a man like we are, and people are bent especially in our world, especially non-believers, towards rank and greatness and power and influence. It's a heady wine that people want to drink. People are constantly driven towards this and they race to obtain it. They will sacrifice their time. They'll sacrifice resources and they'll even sacrifice their health to be esteemed by others. This is the temptation that Moses would have faced but Moses did not rely on nobility. He didn't rely on position. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, true faith will announce its discord whenever God and conscience call forward to. You can love your culture. And I add never all the way. Um, but a point of refusal will always come where you refuse to identify with the godless zeitgeist, the godless spirit of the age. There comes a point in your life And in your conscience where you have to make a decision whether to just go with the flow or say enough is enough. You got to see the difference. We're going to talk about the difference between Joseph's path as prince of Egypt where he stayed in a righteous way. But for Moses, it was entirely different. He was brought to a crossroads under a different Pharaoh, under a different circumstance, under a different situation where God's people were being oppressed. And he had to make a decision whether to just go with it and enjoy rank, enjoy wealth. He could have rationalized his situation and said, well, this is the will of God for me, just like it was for Joseph before me. But instead he said, no, I'm not going to go with the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. I'm, I'm going to reject it. He trusted God. He turned away. He, like Jesus, when facing all the kingdoms of the world, Satan said, just bow down to me. I'll give it all to you. And what did Jesus say? No, be gone, Satan. You worship the Lord, your God and him alone. So secondly, not only re- refused rank and position and stature, but also pleasure, pleasure. He he put fle- pleasure aside. And you see this in verse 25 of Hebrews 11. It says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I like that word fleeting. It's not that sin isn't something that can be enjoyed. The author of Hebrews is honest about that. Sin is enjoyable. Sin sells. Sin is marketable, right? Sin is something that we know of because we're born sinners We have hearts that want to do it. James 1 talks about how our hearts are looking at sin and being lured to do things all the time. But at the same time, the clear word of God says that sin is fleeting. It's temporary. It's transitory. It's here and gone. What would have been the fleeting pleasures that Moses would have faced? There's no hint in scripture that Moses ever compromised in terms of immorality, neither he nor Joseph. The pleasures could have been sensual. They could have been intellectual. They could have been social pleasure. Egypt had it all. It had all forms of pleasure. It was the center of art. And the center of science and learning. It was a resort for anyone who had skills in these disciplines. Hedonism or pleasure was the young man's passion. And it was to be found in Egypt. It was all the comforts of all the world zeroing in on this place. That's what makes it so profound that Moses walked away from it. Again, showing the power of the word of God in his life. First John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, The desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. Moses didn't refuse what he couldn't have had. Moses could have had it and he basically had access to it all at this stage in his life. At this pivotal point in his life that was going to build the trajectory one way or the other. Moses had it all. And he sided instead with God's people. He refused it. He said, no, Moses' faith here was not passive, sided with Israel over the Egyptians. If you look back even at Exodus 2, I I know I'm kind of flipping you back and forth with that, but look at verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So he was siding with the Israelites. This was not just a moment of passion where he says enough is enough. This is no, his heart was with God because his heart was with God's people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your own? Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. As the story goes. Now, I read the broader context to show you that Moses was a man who was vulnerable to weakness. Just like us. He looked both ways before he took matters into his own hands to kill the Egyptian. He, he hid the body. He was fearful when he was found out, all those things were real in Moses heart, but the overriding decision was for him to say, I'm going to make a break with the rank and with the, Glory and with the pleasures that Egypt could bring me, and I'm gonna side with God's people, and I'm gonna do so in an extraordinary way. He's breaking loyalty with the world. It's an important decision that you need to be able to make in the on the job, in relationships, in friendships at pivotal points in your life, you'll have to decide where your loyalty lies. Is it with Christ or is it with the world? Is it with what feeds my flesh or is it with Christ? That's what we're talking about here. This is the Christian's DNA. You have to be able to see as Hebrews 11 verse 25 says that being mistreated with people, being willing to suffer for Christ is better than enjoying fleeting pleasures of sin. Fleeting. Sin is temporary. It is fleeting. It is transitional. As one person put it, is 15 minutes of pleasure worth your entire life? Think about that. Is 15 minutes of pleasure worth your integrity? Is 15 minutes of pleasure worth your wounded conscience? Sin is something that people want to ignore. Uh, There's a lot of talk in our country today, obviously, happening. Even on Capitol Hill and, and a lot of ideological battles that are going on between liberalism and conservatism. And I heard someone say that, you know, liberalism is something that is, is looking more corporately at causes to, to be fixed that are outside of us. We want to focus on causes outside of us instead of what conservatism looks at, which is fixing things within us, within a, inside of us. The morality issues that are within our hearts dealing with our own conscience. Instead of trying to divert our attention to societal causes on the outside, we should look on the inside into individual character. That's what Moses was doing here. He was making a characterological decision. Now he ultimately was this rescuer of people, which is a, a big issue in you know God's economy, but at the same time, it all began with his own character looking inside. Now, again, let's compare Joseph with Moses a little bit more. Moses had arisen to the same position as Joseph. He was prince of Egypt when Israel was enslaved. Um, God had given a different mission to Moses. Joseph used Egypt's power for the good of God's people, and Moses would have to oppose Egypt's power for The same purpose. So let me ask this. Was Joseph in the will of God? Yes. Would it have been right for Moses to take Joseph's path, which for Joseph was the will of God, but was not the will of God for Moses? Obviously not. This is how the will of God works. Now, where the scripture speaks explicitly clear in terms of morality, right and wrong, we're all to obey scripture. But different circumstances, different situations, different settings that God creates lead us in different directions. And so, I just think it's an important piece of um, understanding to understand that for Moses, he had a different plan. It's kind of like the Romans fourteen twenty three. That um, where people were eating meat sacrificed to idols in the early church. And for some people, the weaker brothers were looking at that going, there's no way I would touch anything that is related at all to that kind of witchcraft and sorcery and idol worship. And for other people, they're just going, hey, it's, it's a side of beef. I can eat the beef. It's okay. It's all right. And so for one, it would be sin. And for the other, it would not be sin. Because Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Joseph was acting in faith and Moses likewise was acting in faith. Well, here's the third thing that I want to point out that Moses refused and that was wealth. I just want to hit this, the treasures of Egypt. When you think of Egypt, do you think of it being a wealthy place? Well, in the ancient world, it was very, very wealthy. And we know the pyramids and obelisks, those, those sort of um, structures that are like our capital, the temples, um, the statues, the ruins, they all witness to incomprehensible wealth. When you think of um, Nefertiti or King Tut, you think of wealth. When you think of these tombs, you think of immense wealth and the pyramids being mighty structures, they're pictures of wealth. Well, this is what Moses was in the middle of. And the temptation is to love that more than God. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and sin and lusting for money is just something I want to point out because the scripture does look at, look at verse 26 It says Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ. In other words, putting himself with the people of God, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's what faith does. It says, for he was looking to the reward. Faith will look at wealth and say, it's here and gone. It, you know, it's, it's something that I have to have as a means to an end. The lust of the flesh will look at wealth and say, I got to have more, I got to have more, I got to have more because I want to act like a God on earth. When I, when I snap my fingers and want something, I get it immediately. I get instant gratification or I see my sins, but I can just hit the reset button over and over with all the money that I have to cover it up. Moses refused this kind of mindset because he saw greater wealth. Again, he wasn't a beatnik liberal. He was 40. And so he knew what life was about. He wasn't ignorant. He was educated. He was able to weigh both sides of the question. He said, look, I'm going to reject the wealth of the world. Being the wealthiest man on earth under Pharaoh, I'm going to reject that and I'm going to go suffer with God's People. I'm, I'm going to bear the reproach of Christ. Now, he's 1,500 years before Christ, so does he know Christ? No. The author of Hebrews is saying when Moses, as a type of Christ, a, a Savior figure, when he began to be this leader of the Israelites and to align himself with them and to to endure suffering and the threat of Pharaoh with them, he was actually with Christ, because Christ is the Lord of everyone who's ever believed. Anyone that's ever been saved since Adam's sin is based on the blood of Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, every prophet, every priest and every king is a picture of Christ. And these people of God are a picture of the body of Christ. And so that's where Moses aligned himself was with those people instead of worldly Wealth, again back to the business decision. The business decision that you'll have to make one way or the other in this world, the the occupation decision, how you spend your life, all comes down to whether or not you have this kind of faith where you see that God is the wealth, not the world's wealth. It's different. Eternal riches are not fleeting, they're not temporary. Our wealth is in who God is in our lives. I mean, this is really what my conversion came down to. I enjoyed a pretty good life um, growing up as a a teenager in Virginia and had, you know, had a nice car and had a nice um, situation, a nice lifestyle. And, you know, the world was something that I was exposed to, not always in bad ways. Um, you know, my parents would take me to New York city and I would, I would, see the city and go to plays and do some different things. Some of you have done those things. Probably many of you have, I would went to sporting events that were, you know, world-class sporting events and talked to certain people who were famous or whoever. And I've done some things. I mean, since being in Alaska, I've enjoyed some things like, uh, I went on a um, flight sing tour into Denali, had that great opportunity when we flew a guest speaker out there. I, I was um, kind of wooed into getting into the back of the plane by, um, our youth pastor. And he said, Hey, do this. This will be great. You won't want to miss this. And I had no idea where we were really flying to. I just was the drop-off guy, but we were hosting a guest here, our men speaker, and he was going to do this. So I jumped in the back and suddenly the day was beautiful and glorious. And we're, we're going, you know, an hour, um, you know, flying through some turbulence, but just, you know, minimal stuff. And there's Denali, and I thought, wow, I get to see an up-close you know, view of Denali, and then we're getting closer to Denali and closer, and then suddenly we're in Denali, inside of it, and looking into the crevasses and, and flying all through it, and you know, there was not really any wind, so it was a safe situation. But at first, when, you, when you're in an extraordinary situation like that, you're in awe. Right? If you if you meet somebody that, that you really look up to that you never thought you'd meet and have a conversation with, you have this huh, moment of awe and, and then things normalize. The same thing with Denali. I mean eventually this becomes the new normal and you're going, wow, I'm flying around this. But it's it's amazing. It is some of the best uh you know, Alaska cred that I have on my cell phone where I show people videos of, hey, guess where I've been, you know, this is amazing. But everything that you taste in the world, whether you know you're seeing incredible architecture, meeting great people, eating fine foods or whatever, it, eventually it just becomes normalized, right? You're like, man, it, it was great and I, I really paid a lot of, for it and I really wanted that and it was wonderful, but then it just kind of goes, okay, that, that was good, right? I mean, that's my experience. I, I love things and I enjoy life experiences and hope to have more. There'll be things that I won't do this side of eternity. And I am okay with that and because I found something better and that's Christ. I mean, that's my testimony at 17. I just found that the Lord is my rock and he, he, he's the one who fills me with joy. And he's the one who is satisfying for me. He's the one who's there for me. The genuine person who's perfect in my life to feed my heart for what it needs, not money, not friends, Experiences. This is the story of Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You could say it this way, and you know, in a comparative sense, you know, your own home is where your heart is, right? Your own family, your own friends. There's there's something more genuine there, and on the deepest level, we we pillow our head in Christ. He is our rest. He's our place of comfort. He's our refuge. And so it was for Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. This is faith than the treasures of Egypt for he's looking for the reward. That was it. We align ourselves with Christ. I think of Paul's words, Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus and then in Hebrews thirteen 13, um, we'll get there in a few months, but listen to this. Therefore, let us, go out, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So why do you choose Christ? Why will you be willing to burn bridges with the world? There'll be a bridge that you'll have to burn. Why will you be willing to do that? Because you have faith. That's the only reason why. And if you have faith, you will. You'll be like Moses. We put him on a pedestal where really he's just like us. By faith, we bear the reproach with Christ because that's greater wealth. That's greater treasure, greater joy.